Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories from See-Through News Series 7 Marcus and Jemima How I Deal with People at Parties Who Assume I Have Children by George Hinchliffe Episode 1, The Truth Revealed. Okay, George, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Hello, I'm George Hinchliffe. All you need to know about me, for the purposes of this story, is that my wife worked in the film industry, and when filming had finished, they usually had a party. What they call a wrap party, because shooting had wrapped. And all the people involved in the film and the movie went along to a party and they had drinks and canapes and socialisation. And so I came along and uh, met lots of people who I'd never met before and who I probably would never meet again. At one of these parties, I found myself talking to a gentleman who was in a similar position. He was nothing to do with the film, but he was there and his partner was off talking to her colleagues, the assistant director, the key grip catering manager, whatever. And so he and I were in a social circumstance, not knowing anybody really. And so we started making conversation. And in order to facilitate the conversation, we were being friendly. Whereas in actual fact, we initially had no reason to talk to each other, didn't know anything about each other. Sorry, can you just um, tell me what his name was and what kind of trousers he was wearing? I was getting on to that. <clears throat> so I found myself talking to this gentleman, Rupert, and he had red trousers and a waistcoat. So I deduced, perhaps inaccurately, that he was middle-class, bourgeois, perhaps had a job in the city. He didn't know anything about me. But in order to make conversation, he said to me, have your children left university? And I thought, well, I don't have any children, and therefore they haven't gone to university, so we're missing out a few steps here. He's rather jumping the gun and making assumptions. But if I were to say no or I don't have any children, it would seem to be putting a negative sort of dampener on the whole social intercourse. And so I thought that what I should do is say something else. So on this occasion, I thought, I'm probably never going to meet this man again, and he's probably never going to be in conversation with my wife, blah, blah, blah. I could just say, yes, and then carry on the conversation as though I've got children. Obviously, his children have left university. This is the world that he's operating in. And so I said, well, Marcus is in Peru, and he has some business things going there, and Jemima has only just left university, and she's in Indonesia and is travelling around Asia. And um, who knows what she's doing? She's with her partner, Simeon, and uh, I don't hear from them too much currently. And then I thought, this is rather a masterstroke. Marcus said to me recently, Dad, the business is going pretty well, but if you could see your way clear to giving me another, I don't know, £60,000, it would really enable me to take things on to the next level and it would be brilliant and I'd really appreciate it. And so I then thought, for heaven's sake, all that time shelling out to keep them going through university. And now I thought I'd finished all that process. I don't have to worry about them. They're off doing their own thing. They're totally independent, starting to generate their own income. I don't need to worry. But here we are, a demand for 60,000 quid. And indeed, Rupert said to me uh, with his red trousers, I know what you mean. 
my Henry is exactly the same. He said blah, blah, blah. And then he carried on talking about the situation with his son Henry. And I discovered that the totally fictitious situation that I'd described applied entirely to this chap and his son Henry. We started talking about his son Henry and how much money he wanted and what the business was and where it was going. And that meant that we were able to talk happily for the rest of the evening about things that followed on from that without me having to make up any further stories about Marcus or Jemima. So I thought, very good, the uh, social lubrication has been achieved, we've got some rapport, and for the purposes of this evening, we've been friendly and supportive. And I never met him again, and I didn't have to talk about Marcus and Jemima ever again. But I'd made up my children. I don't have Marcus, I don't have Jemima. Just to clarify, what business was Marcus in? In episode two, Overheard, we discover more. Episode two, Overheard. Just to clarify, what business was Marcus in? Well, at the time, he'd got a number of interests and he'd bought some land which he was using, primarily, as I understood it, for some sort of ayahuasca project where people would fly in from Europe and take these herbs and go through some sort of transformative experience. What it exactly involved, I've no idea. At this point, had you met Simeon? At this point, Simeon was entirely fictitious and so was... um, um, uh, what's her name? <laughs> <laughs> Jemima. Yeah, but had you met him? No, no, i just heard about Simeon. You know, she'd met him after university and gone off, I don't know, went to Jakarta and uh, who knows where they were. Just to clarify things, could you retell this story as a third party, as if you were at this party and you describe what you saw and what you overheard? Mm. Well... I was standing at the party and I didn't know anybody and my partner was part of the film crew but I didn't know any of them and she was off talking to some other folk and uh, I was left standing at the bar uh, next to these two fellows, one of whom had red trousers on and he said, have your children left university? And I was simply observing as the second chap said, Yes, my children have left university. Marcus is in Peru and Jemima is in Indonesia. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. These are people who've got experiences that I don't have at all. And so I observed and listened to their conversation developing about their children and their children's business interests and their concerns about supporting the children financially and when the end of the support was going to come. Rupert was feeling a little isolated and anxious, not knowing anybody at this party. And so he said to the man standing next to him, George, in this case, have your children left university, hoping to start some sort of conversation. Perhaps he could have been thinking, what's your handicap at golf? Or did you buy a red motorcycle when you had your midlife crisis? So he was trying to bond, and he thought George looked like the sort of chap who would have kids who'd just left university looking at his age and whatnot. And then George thought, well, here I am, not knowing anybody and slightly uh, anxious. I should try and have a conversation with this chap who's standing next to me at the bar. He's opened up the conversation. I should respond to this in a sympathetic manner, but I could, uh, in the interests of being friendly and for the purposes of this social interaction, go along with whatever he's said. I'm thinking of techniques of improvisation in theatre, for example, when somebody says... um, 
oh, the chimpanzee is due to be delivered at any point. And then the other person on the stage, improvising, could say, what are you talking about, chimpanzee? What do you mean, the delivery of a chimpanzee? Well, sounds ridiculous. Or you could say, oh, absolutely, yes. Didn't Bert say it was going to come this morning? Yes, yes, yes. And then they say, uh, Bert did say it was going to come this morning, but it was delayed. So the chimpanzee won't arrive until about four o'clock this afternoon. Oh, fine, fine. I better go and get the bananas. So you make it up and then you have uh, the flow. Saying yes to things is what makes good flow and good theatre. And indeed, conversation at a a rap party standing next to the bar and the canapes might be the same. So that's what George was thinking. So instead of saying, I haven't got any children, or I don't know what you're talking about with the chimpanzee, he said, yes, the children have left university, and then started to say a little bit about it. And then he started extrapolating from that and made up something about the children, which was a good move because it enabled Rupert to say, I recognise what you're talking about, the same thing happened to me. So the entirely fictitious story about Marcus and his wish for £60,000 chimed in with Rupert's experience with Henry. So the two blokes were able to bond and, and talk. Yeah, that seems perfectly clear. Thank you very much. For anyone who's not entirely sure which bits are true and which bits aren't, is there some kind of story you could tell us that would help illuminate this? In episode three, An Illuminating Story, we hear George's illuminating story. Episode 3, An Illuminating Story. For anyone who's not entirely sure, you know, which bits are true and which bits aren't, is there some kind of story you could tell us that would help illuminate this? Well, a pertinent consideration in relation to this could be the famous mathematical story of the island inhabited by truth-tellers and liars. That is to say, it's a thought experiment. Imagine an island with two villages on it, one inhabited by people who are compulsive truth-tellers and the other inhabited by people who are compulsive liars. Someone arrives on the island and they want to go to one of the villages but not the other village. It's sort of crucial to get to the right one. And they meet a person. So the question is, can they formulate a question such that whether the person responding is a compulsive liar or a compulsive truth-teller, the questioner can get the right information in order to go to the right village. I've always had a problem with this mathematical construction because compulsive liars will not behave in a mathematically exact way. They'll make all sorts of stuff up. Maybe they're double agents. Maybe they just wanted to muddy the waters and confuse things. They aren't going to behave like a mathematical formula. And indeed, truth-tellers often deceive themselves. They think they're telling the truth, but they've made something up. The difference between truth and lies is, is more complicated than something that's exclusively mathematical. And so I hit upon a better solution than the mathematical formulations that people usually come up with in these circumstances. I thought, if I meet someone on the island, were I to be there, I'd say to them, oh, goodness me, I hear that in the village of truth-tellers, they're giving away free beer this afternoon. And then I'd just hang about and see which way they went. Of course, free beer would make them go to the village with the free beer, and I'd follow along at a respectable distance. That seems at least as reliable a way of finding out where to go as having this mathematical construction of a rather convoluted question. Of course, 
you might find that people will say, I don't want to be with a bunch of heavy drinkers. I don't like alcohol. I'll go the other way. But you're, you're going to get that sort of response in relation to your mathematical question in the real world. Thank you for clearing that up. Mm. I'm just wondering, how do we introduce Clytemnestra? In episode four, Further Developments, we learn of George's other children. Episode 4. Further developments. How do we introduce Clytemnestra? Is it possible that there are others as well? Well, once I had realised that I'd invented my children, Marcus and Jemima, I thought, if this had been real, would they have been my only children? You know, here I am in my 60s, been around for a while, had relationships. It's probably likely that I would have had more than two children, if I'd have been in the business of having children. And so I thought, actually, early on in my adult life, I probably would have had another child. And I thought Clytemnestra would probably have been the name that we'd have chosen. Of course, I'm not sure at this stage whether Clytemnestra would have come along before Marcus and Jemima. It's unclear. If you're making it up, you can switch all that around. You could say, oh yes, Clytemnestra came along quite late in my life. Or you could say, oh well, before I'd got things together. It was just a mistake at college. But you know, she came along and we welcomed her. Um, It's been a bit of a struggle to cope with her. So I don't know whether she's older or younger than the other two. If the conversation had developed and then we talked about other children, I would have said to Rupert, of course, I have another child, Clytemnestra. And he'd said, oh, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? He'd probably say that and say, you know, because we'd have established rapport and he would be able to, in a way, criticise the naming of the child or at least discuss it. And I would have said, yes, it's a bit of a mouthful, but we've always called her Clio or Clia, we would say. You wouldn't abbreviate Clytemnestra to Clyte or Clytem, but uh, Clia is probably the, the word that you'd use. And so it, that would sound perfectly reasonable. And when I, you know, if you said, do you call her Clytemnestra? Time to come in from the garden now, Clytemnestra. You know, say, uh, it'd be uh, Clia. Clia, that sounds like the sort of name you would give a child, I think, uh, colloquially. After I'd been talking to uh, Rupert for a while about the two children, I confessed to him that I did have a third child, Clytemnestra, and because he'd established some rapport and we were talking in uh, quite a relaxed way by then, he was able to ask me if uh, we always called the third daughter Clytemnestra or if we shortened her name. And so, of course, I said to him that in everyday use we'd said Clia. We called her Clia, not Clytemnestra. And uh, so he thought, he thought that was perfectly reasonable and it seemed perfectly credible that we had a third daughter with a slightly unusual name. And what were the circumstances under which you had this other child that you you didn't? And why didn't you immediately uh, bring her up? Well, Clytemnestra was a different kettle of fish, if you will. And when I was talking to Rupert about it, I realised that Clytemnestra could have come along before Marcus and Jemima or could have come along quite late in life. And so I chose to uh, introduce the topic without specifying details about how old she was. Of course, if you're making things up, it's sometimes a good idea to have a backstory so that you can say, oh yes, uh, Clytemnestra is uh, 30 now. Or say, well, you know, she's only 12. It was a late uh, addition to the family. But of course, 
if you're responding to the needs of a social circumstance and primarily you're not trying to come up with something that's uh, accurate or true uh, but merely trying to facilitate social intercourse and uh, establish rapport with a person you're probably never going to see again, uh, you can make it up as you go along. If the social circumstance develops to the extent that candour and detail seems appropriate, then I could say something more about my own circumstances. So, for example, rather than saying that I'd been in the army and I'd had a, an honourable discharge, even though I was the person who procured the non-prescribed pharmaceuticals, which my superior officer was uh, court-martialed as a result of, and, and he had a, well, he had a dishonourable discharge, and I had the honourable discharge, even though I was the one who got the drugs. Uh, rather than telling that story, which of course uh, could have been true, uh, I could have told a story about how I had uh, post-traumatic stress and was uh, banged up in a, a psychiatric wing. Of course, this was in the late 70s, early 80s, when things were different, and they only let me out one day a year. And so I saw my wife once a year, and, and for the next 13 years, we had 13 children saving up our fertility for that one day a year. So I could say that Marcus and Jemima came along, Clytemnestra was a different thing, but... Hubert, Lily and Walter were the next three children. We went in this old-fashioned sort of uh, naming cycle. And then we decided to have more modern names, so we had Wayne and then the following year Taylor and then Warren. And then we got all sort of new-agey about it and had Sky. Rather a nice name, I thought. But then decided traditional or old-fashioned naming conventions were better, so we had Augusta. Uh, and then, of course, late additions were Micah and Baz. But by the time Micah and Baz came along, we'd got into, uh, what do they call that thing? Care in the community, so I was no longer incarcerated all through the year. Thank you for clearing that up. And, of course, then we had Pajork. <laughs> What was the, what was going on with Pjork? Why, that was on the way back. That was unrelated. But why did that seem funny? We were talking about children who had names that were like pork products. Like meat, Captain B on some kind of bacon. Meat. Oh, Kevin, Kevin Bacon. bacon that's yeah. what it was. Let's not get distracted. Oh, and Michael Gammon. <laughs> okay. There may still be some listeners who are slightly in the doubt about what's going on. I thought your story about the village of compulsive truth tellers and compulsive liars was very helpful in that regard. But I wonder if, uh, if there's another illustrative story that might illuminate you know, what's true and what's not. In episode five, further clarifications, George tries to set things straight. Episode five. Further clarifications. I wonder if, uh, if there's another illustrative story that might illuminate you know, what's true and what's not. Well, of course, one of the aspects of telling a story is that people are often far more invested in the story which has an emotional truth rather than whether something is factual. I've found in my own experience that if I tell people the truth about what I've been doing, 
often they don't believe it, even though I can demonstrate that it's true. Whereas if I tell a story that is interesting and not at all true, the listeners are probably more inclined to believe that or want to believe it, or at any rate, they're more interested in it. And so over time, we'll accept the entertaining story, which has a kind of emotional veracity, rather than the factual story, which doesn't resonate with them at all. So just as with the story that I told to uh, Rupert, he resonated with the story about the children who'd left university and were wanting to get some money out of me. He probably wouldn't have related to the story about owning a car park on some disused building site somewhere, which I was then able to sell for a few quid and uh, go off on a holiday. You know, if, Unless that was his experience, he'd go, well, it sounds a bit peculiar. Selling a car park, well, what's that? Unless it's a huge, great car park in an urban centre, blah, blah. And so, you know, the entertaining story might be the one that resonates more. Uh, for example, when I lived in Eckington, um, we had a dog. It wasn't my dog, it was the, my cousin's dog, but the, you know, it was in the family. And I suggested that the cousin enter this dog into a, a dog competition, you know, it was a shaggy dog competition, uh, which was in Eckington at Village Fate. It, the dog was duly entered. There were three judges, you know, after they'd done the egg and spoon race and the gymkhana and all that stuff. The first judge said, that is a shaggy dog. And the second judge says, that's a very shaggy dog. And the third judge said, that is without doubt the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. So the dog won the prize for the shaggiest dog in uh, Eckington. Of course, after that result, my cousin was all buoyed up and decided to enter the North Derbyshire shaggy dog competition. And the first judge there said, that's a shaggy dog. And the second judge said, that's a very shaggy dog. And the third judge said, that's the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. So the dog won the competition, North Derbyshire, shaggiest dog. And so then they went on to North of England, shaggy dog competition, first judge. Shaggy dog, second judge, very shaggy dog. Third judge said, that is without a doubt the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. So it won the competition. Rosettes, prizes, <clears throat> trips to Mexico. Oh, lots of things came out of this. And then they entered the dog in the All England shaggy dog competition. And first judge said, that's a shaggy dog. The second judge says it's a, a very shaggy dog. And the third judge says that's the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. So it won. So then after that, my cousin entered the dog into the European shaggy dog competition. And the first judge said shaggy dog. Second judge, very shaggy dog. Third judge, shaggiest dog I've ever seen. It won. All European. Then, of course, one thing led to another. It went on to the worldwide shaggy dog competition. First judge says, shaggy dog, second judge, very shaggy dog, third judge, shaggiest dog I've ever seen, it won. The, the shaggiest dog in the world uh, was then the, the conclusion. And by then, space travel had been getting going, and so the solar system competition came up. Shaggiest dog in the solar system was going to be the title. And indeed, there were three judges, and the first judge said it's a shaggy dog, and the second judge said it's a very shaggy dog, and the third judge said, no, it's the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. So it won that competition. And of course, then they went on to enter the competition for the shaggiest dog in the entire universe. And the first judge said, that is a shaggy dog. The second judge said, it's a, a very shaggy dog. And the third judge says, I'm afraid it's not quite the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. And so my cousin's dog didn't win the competition. But that's a story about a shaggy dog. Is that the same as a shaggy dog story? <laughs> I could say... 
could say it is, couldn't I? Well, thank you for clearing that up, George. Are there cases where lies can actually be more truthful than truths? Can I go for a pee? Yeah. When he gets back in episode six, Behind the Words, George reveals what he really means. Episode 6, Behind the Words. There's a bigger issue here, isn't there, about truth and lies. When you described your original encounter with red-trousered Rupert, it could be argued that there was a greater truth being told in lying, and maybe the, other, the opposite is also true. Would you go along with that? Often the difference between truth and lies is uh, something which could be discussed. People often gravitate towards something which has an emotional veracity, which might be different from objective truth. For example, if you say, how long is the coast of, of England? It depends. Are you measuring in miles or round and round each pebble? If you went round each pebble, the distance would change dramatically from high tide to low tide. And I'm thinking about songs, for example. People relate to songs. You know, they say, uh, I love you because you understand me. And of course, that's not really why people love each other. Maybe they've got a mutual admiration society going or they need each other and people choose to misunderstand each other or support each other or forgive each other. And those things are more important than actual real understanding. A very popular song has been, I did it my way. And I think people warm to that song because they want to be able to say, I did it my way. Whereas in actual fact, most people didn't do it their way. It's luck or circumstances, or they've been mucked around by the system endlessly, and whatever they've got left with is what they think uh, has been a product of their own actions. Usually it's not that at all. And so I think a lot of stuff that passes for fact or truth is sort of self-justification. Say, oh, I pressed those buttons there and this was the result. Well, you maybe pressed those buttons, but what you ended up with might not have been the result of pressing those buttons. You mentioned, I think, particularly country music in this regard, about that being a particular example of things that are asserted that we wish to be true, and they may even have some profounder truth, but they're clearly objectively not true. I think it is true that there are a lot of, for example, country and western songs where the lyric appears to make some sort of sense and people warm to that message because they wish it were true. But in actual fact, it's not true. It describes circumstances that they would prefer to be true. And indeed, lots of stories are like that. Uh, they're not telling what really happens, they're telling what we wish happened. Maybe just having a happy ending is the simplest version of one of those. Lots of stories don't really have happy endings, but we like the story about the happy ending especially if there's a bit of jeopardy along the way and then we can feel like we've achieved something, conquered the, the dragons or whatever it is. I'm reminded of the story that people used to tell, that there were tracks on rock albums or, or country rock albums where the track at the end of the LP ran backwards. So the lyrics sounded unintelligible, but if you played it backwards, it had a secret message. They said this about the Beatles, you play it backwards and it says Paul is dead or something like that, some nonsense. But of course, there was a story about a blues album where the final track played backwards. Of course, if you play the blues backwards, 
you go to sleep in the evening, your dog gets resurrected, you get out of jail free, your, your woman comes back. It's a happy ending. It's the opposite of the blues. So that seems to me the best way of having a backwards track. That's very illuminating. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Why have we evolved to prefer stories to reality? In episode seven, all is revealed largely. We finally get to the bottom of things largely. Episode 7. All is revealed. Largely. Why have we evolved to prefer stories to reality? Hmm. I think it is true that as humans we tend to like stories that are beguiling rather than drawing reasonable conclusions from statistical analysis of what happened. So, for example, when we're all sitting around the table and we've not quite finished the bottle of champagne... I can't imagine a circumstance where people would do that, but I understand that this sometimes happens. And people say, if you simply put a spoon in the top of the champagne bottle, it will stop the bubbles getting out. Why anybody would think that is beyond me, because bubbles clearly are going to come up in the liquid and go into the air, and the, so the champagne's going to go flat. But people persist in saying that uh, you put a spoon in the top. And I suppose if you've had a few drinks and there's a spoon lying around on the table, but you can't get the cork back into the top of the bottle, this is a thing that might spring to mind. And I've heard no end of people telling me that this is a fact and it's true. I've proved it beyond a shadow of doubt that it's not true. It just doesn't work at all. I've tried to demonstrate it to other people, but they won't have it. They say, oh, I think there are still some bubbles there when two days later the thing is as flat as a fart, you know. And, but nevertheless, this is what people do. And I think the story, because you can conceive of it, and if it were true, it would be something that's on a human scale rather than some microscopic analysis or an exhaustive story about statistics and physics and chemistry and whatnot. People like it. And I think a lot of things are like that. Politicians do tend to reassure us and tell us all sorts of things. Uh, as I say, a lie repeated endlessly becomes something that a lot of people believe, especially if a high-status politician has repeated it, whereas a sceptical person would say, that is a load of nonsense, I'm not buying that. But uh, it does become a thing we believe, whether it's a significant thing about pollution or profit or who's running away with the proceeds from some nefarious scheme, or whether it's just some nonsense about bubbles in champagne. We, as a species, seem to want to believe the beguiling or interesting story rather than facing up to the fact. When people have asked me for my CV, resume, story of my life, I've said, oh, yes, I, I run um, Brown's Garage up Hare Hills Lane in Leeds. You know, just a small garage. We do MOTs, reborn decoke, or at least that's what I used to say, when that would have been a perfectly reasonable thing to say. I've no idea about what uh, happens to cars these days. I think it's more like a computer diagnosis and install a new unit. But in those days, reborn decoke sounded quite credible. And then at other times I've told people that I'd been a professional wrestler, but I was looking for something else. Uh, I'd saved up the prize money, so there was no great urgency. And at one stage I'd been an unarmed combat instructor. Of course, that was when I was in the armed forces again. But that was not the version of the metaverse which led me to... What was the story? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember what happened now. Um, 
uh, the dishonourable discharge. Uh, there was no honourable or dishonourable discharge. Uh, but indeed, you know, when people say, so where did all these children feature in the story, I can say that it happened over several years. And from Marcus right through to Micah and Baz, there were a lot of children. So, so just to be clear, it was it was not just Marcus and Jemima. And we, we've called this series Marcus and Jemima, but actually there, there were many more children. This is what I said, yes. And uh, when people ask me for the truth, I've said, indeed, there were a lot of children, 13 children altogether. So can you just go through their names? Marcus, Jemima, Clytemnestra, Hubert and Walter. Oh, I missed out Lily. Wayne, Taylor, Warren, Skye, Augusta, Micah and Baz. So you really have 13 children? No, I was lying. If you enjoyed Marcus and Jemima, please try our other The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories podcast series, all of which are also entirely true, largely. Marcus and Jemima was written by George Hinchliffe, who also composed the series' music. The series was produced and mixed by Sternwriter. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a non-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more... 